My guest today has been described by his colleagues as an authentic leader whose expertise in selling systems, motivational theories, and behavioral science is so relevant in today's world of sales. Here's a quote, direct quote from one of his clients. My team has learned a tremendous amount from Nima. Here's another one. The moment you meet Nima, you can feel the energy. As you work with him, you uncover his passion and the genuine desire to draw the best out of others. He challenges your thinking, pushes your comfort zone, and delivers on the promise that real change can happen for anyone. I go on. Nima is one of those great people that is both well-experienced, successful, and unassuming. With a large and healthy dose of self-deprecating humor, he has helped me close the biggest clients of my career by teaching me how to sell with integrity and sincerity. I'm not done yet, Nima. He's also described as an extraordinary talent and highly successful. Everything the guy touches turns to gold. He understands business and understands people and relationships even better. He is outstanding with illustrations and stories to help drive points home. Definitely one of a kind. Nima Semnani, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My imposter syndrome is at a peak level right now, Paul. So I, I thought it would be. I mean, yeah, let's just, can we, can we end now? Can we just, is, can I we thought just... it would be. I, I was on your LinkedIn and, and my, the first challenge was just to, I, I only picked a small number. There's any number of those. And there's a common theme through them as well, which is quite interesting. But I knew when I was putting it out that I said I was going to have fun with this. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, it's thank you very they're all much. Oh, yours, man. I didn't write them for you know. They're I just I just cut and paste. Yeah, well, I think they said they said the self-deprecating humor. So the uh, yeah. uh, you know, that, that thing that's coming out. The the sometimes I'll say, yeah. you know, I want to be really good at self-deprecating, but I suck at it. Um, so. <laughs> So, so one of the things for, for listeners that they may not know is you're a Sandler trainer. So you are a colleague. We know each other. So, um, but we know each other, but we don't know each other. We've, we've spoken, but we've really not spent any time together since you, you, you've come into the business. So I'd like to just eh, get to know you better and talk a little bit about your background, how you got into this business um, what you've learned along the way, if that's okay. So take me back, your names, Semnani. Where is it from? Talk to me a little bit about that, that backstory. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm Persian, first generation Iranian American. And um, I, I would say like many people who um, are, are not American um, and there's a, a ethnic aspect to not only ourselves, our culture, but even our names. So uh, our names tend to mean things. So uh, Semnani, and and the full name is Tului Semnani, um, Tului, middle name for me, Semnani, last name. Uh, Semnan is actually a province in, in Iran um, that uh, I've never been to. So, you know, years and years and years ago, Semnan became Semnani, and Tului means sunrise. And the story allegedly is that my great 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 grandfather, or probably great 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 grandfather, was walking along and he saw the sunrise over Semnan. So Tului, sunrise, Semnan, Semnani. Tului, Semnani. So there you go. And then I Beautiful. think Nima means poet, but I'm not entirely sure about that one. I feel really bad about my name now. It means nothing. <laughs> Well, I feel bad now because I have a, a newborn uh, nephew who's named Rumi. So I thought I was the poet, and he's named after literally one of the greatest poets of all time. So it's all right. We all have our own crosses to bear, Paul. Yes, yes. My son, Rian, that means little king. So we, we, we did pay attention there, but uh, not surname. So you, you're relaxing. I mean, you grew up in America, right? You didn't... Uh... You didn't arrive on a plane in the recent past. I was born in Carmel, California, uh, a child of the revolution uh, in Iran, the ousting of the Shah, the coming to power of the Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, uh, family uh, persecution, needing to escape. So I, I, yeah. I like to say that my family's origin story is probably far more interesting than mine. But yeah, I, I was born and raised here. So I'm, I'm probably always confronting those 
those life scripts from from the old uh, the old country and and that of my families. And Ooh. here I am, this uh, American through and through, and trying to juxtaposition and figuring out, you know, who I am I of these yeah. kind of blended people that I've become. Well, I'd like to talk to you about that if that's all right, because your your parents' first generation Iranian, right? I, I think that's how it works because they they were here when I was born. So I guess that makes me second generation, but I'm the first that was born in the United States. Yeah, no, but they, they, they came uh, during or before that revolution as part of And I actually, I remember that and it doesn't feel that long ago. Wow. Um, so you're, you're son of direct immigrants and there's always this sense of with, with, with immigrants in terms of uh, the stereotypes of hardworking, they keep their head down, strong values, family, you know, the, the tight-knit communities. A, how true is that for you? And B, how much did that background, and particularly the, the how they came here? Because again, you know, a, a lot of Irish people would have gone to America. They were fleeing typically something else, maybe poverty rather than a revolution. So but they still had to flee. They still, they still left, but it's different. The, the choices were different. So I think that might influence the culture of those communities. And I was curious to know what you noticed about that community with, with your parents, your extended family that you know, kind of makes, is part of your story and, and makes you who you are. I would say there's a lot of truth to that. And I don't necessarily know if this is unique to Iranians. Um, well, there's a few things I can I can speak to there. and I've always found it fascinating. Uh, for starters, everyone in my extended family, even people who are just family friends, people who I've known for most of my life, they become uncles and cousins. And it's even funny, like my American friends, they'll be like, so is that your uncle or is that your uncle? And, and that I know is not unique to just Iranians, but I, I think there might be a reason behind it. So it's just culture that if someone is Iranian and you know them and they're a family friend, you just call them, you know, oh, this, that's my khaleh and that, you know, my aunt, or that's my amu and that's uh, my uncle. And they Ooh. are often not even blood related. Uh, it, and I think there's probably a reason for that. And this I know to be true beyond just Iranians. Um, but the, there tends to be some sort of common struggle, some sort of a, 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 a origin story, an emigration story. And to me, I've always felt that you had to rely on so many different people, uh, in, in this case, literally escaping a very oppressive, um, murderous regime uh, mm. in, in, in Iran that you're literally relying on people, extended family, friends, and they mm. become family. Uh, through that process. And what's also interesting I found is I, I have different types of Iranian friends and Iranian relatives, and th there's no way I can prove this to be true, but you tend to have those who are very entrepreneurial uh, and those who are kind of very conservative in the decisions they, they make. I don't mean necessarily conservative politically. Uh, I mean conservative as in they you're supposed to be a doctor or an engineer or, you know, go into business, the very safer routes. And then some of my friends and, and Iranian uh, friends and family are risk seeking and entrepreneurial. And sometimes there's almost this like common link between those who had something and then lost it during the revolution. And so they come to this country and some say, you know what? Um, I lost so much, I am going to ensure that doesn't happen again. So I'm gonna pursue mm. some of the more safe avenues I can. I'm gonna be a physician because that's gonna be a, a very good life, but it's also safe. Um, mm. Other people, they survived such atrocities that they kind of had this like, well, I'm kind of not supposed to be there here anyway, so I may as well uh, take a risk. And 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 there is data to, to show that some of the most, um, successful, which obviously we know is a relative term, um, entrepreneurs in the United States uh, were immigrants. And we think about that could mean anything. That can mean someone who goes and, and opens up a series of laundromats or opens up uh, a bunch of franchise uh, restaurants um, or convenience stores. It doesn't have to be they went and, you know, uh, uh, built this, you know, SaaS platform. But a lot of yeah. them do tend to have gone through uh, a struggle. And then there's almost like the, well, 
I literally survived actual life and death. How scary can entrepreneurship be? And then I have the other side of the family that, um, and this is kind of one of the things I often say, and it is true, I'm first generation, Iranian American. I could be anything I wanted when I was growing up, a doctor or an engineer. You know, fast forward many years later, I opened up a sales training company. My family is still waiting for me to get a, a real job one day. Uh, so there, I, I definitely feel there's an amalgam of all these life scripts around expectations and what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. Uh, now, my family is very supportive, um, but they're, they're probably all through my 20s and early, uh, yeah, probably till I was 30. They were kind of like, yeah, so what about med school? You know, when are you going to give up this whole sales thing and, you know, kind of follow in the footsteps of us? So there is a lot of that, I would say. It could be worse. I do understand. I would like you to talk to me about it. You, uh, you, you did stand-up comedy. What's that about? <laughs> Tell me about that because I'm fascinated with that. Um, I've done it a couple times, and, and it's, I guess the origin story there is uh, I grew up um, with a very bad stutter. Uh, it's really kind of bizarre in a way that much of my livelihood is based off of my ability to speak publicly uh, tell stories, engage audiences. Because up until, and I don't, I don't even mean as a kid, kid, I mean, I was a stutterer through much of my middle school, got a little better in high school. And then in my early 20s, I literally did Toastmasters, the public speaking course to really just be able to, to speak. Um, and so the reason why I bring that up is like many things, and, and Paul, um, you and I, I think in uh, a conversation that we've had at one of the conferences, um, I shared with you that one of my favorite quotes was from uh, John Asaroff, who says, um, a comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. And I said, well, what's one of the scariest things I can think of doing? Mm, how about stand-up comedy? And not only how about stand-up comedy, how about we make your very first attempt at stand-up comedy in front of a big room at Caroline's on Broadway in Manhattan. Well, why don't we just dive headfirst in the deep end? Uh, and so that's that's kind of what I did. And obviously there was some prep to it. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. I, I guess why did I do it? Because it scared the heck out of me. Um, and you know, it's like as Seneca talks about, we uh, suffer often more in imagination than reality. And so I was like, all right, well, what's the worst going to happen? I get booed off stage. I'm used to that. What's the best thing that can happen? Well, I'll I'll have an amazing experience um, I that no one can take away from me. And so I was like, the heck with it. Let's do it. What's your style of humor? Well, we've already talked about the self-deprecation part, so that's part of it. Um, you, you know what was interesting? And and, and there's, a, there's a, a gentleman I know. His name is Matt Kazam. Uh, and he was a stand-up comedian, still is a stand-up comedian. But majority of his business is in is in teaching kind of the science uh, of comedy. And, and so, um, and I, I would say a lot of these things are kind of hidden in plain sight. Um, and, and you know, that there are people who may just see a world a certain way and are able to craft those into stories and, and, and find the funny in them. But one thing that was really interesting through talking to him, and I realized it was a lot of what defined me as my, what I find funny is he said, uh, and there's probably more than this, but this is paraphrasing. He said that oftentimes people laugh for a few reasons. He said people laugh when they find commonality. You know, you think of Jerry Seinfeld, like what's the deal with traffic cones? You know, so there's like, the, when you can find commonality in something. Um, they, they also find things funny when they can feel either a superiority or an inferiority around that. There's like an okay, not okay principle. And so people telling stories about, a very bad date they had or, you know, work experience they had. So there's a little bit of that gap in superiority or inferiority, which a lot of times people find funny. And then the last is people laugh and they really find things funny when there's the absurd. And oftentimes Ooh. it's taking the normal and making it like the absurd. So, uh, I mean, for example, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of times where people take something very normal um, and then they make it absurd. Not that this is a stand-up comedy bit, but just I was riffing with some clients in a, in a training. And for whatever reason, I just started saying, you know, a lot of the things we were taught as children are just outright lies. Like how about rock, paper, scissors, for example? There's no way 
Rock would ever lose, period. Rock would always win. You think Rock's going to give up because paper covers it? We all know Rock beats scissors, but Rock beats paper. So it's all a lie. Rock always wins. And there's something, I mean, it may not even be funny. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it's just something common that they make it irreverent and absurd. So I would say oh. my style is probably heavily on the irreverent side of things. That's mm. what makes me laugh. All right. Yeah. No, because I'd seen that there's, there's, there's different, I guess, techniques. There's, I was thinking exaggeration, which is the absurd you're talking about, where you're, something's over-exaggerated, or there is where two stories can collide, where somebody will take you down by suggesting it's one thing and your mind fills in the blanks, but then they turn right and, and it's yes. something else. And it's, 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 a, it's a weird, it's a weird, it's weird from a scientific perspective to try and describe it. I don't know that you can. But, uh, well, it's, it's funny because, like, it, because it's you know one of the things that everyone says is the best way to make a joke not funny is to explain it. Um, yeah. Yet, so I'll give you an example. One of my favorite comedians is uh, is a guy named Gary Goldman. He, he's phenomenal, um, and and there's certain bits he he does that are just so genius. He has a bit, uh, and he's telling a story. Obviously, it's made up. I'm guessing telling a story about he and his wife uh, experimenting in role play um, in the bedroom. But what makes it funny is there's not even sexuality to it. He's taking the scene of like the Randy professor and the student that's not, hasn't done her homework, except for he's taking it very literal. And he's saying, well, here's what you have to do. She's like, what do I have to do? And he's like, you have to do a 10 page term paper. And she's like, what? He's like, yep, it's due next Friday. And he obviously does it much better, but that, that's an example of just the irreverence, the absurdity, because we, we think we know the story's going and then there's yeah. like a, a massive right-hand turn. Um, and, and then I also think about the, you know, history of the world, right? Mel Brooks, he's a, a stand-up philosopher, uh, and, uh, oh, and artist. <laughs> exactly. did you bullshit like, today? Did you bullshit <laughs> yesterday? <laughs> did you try to bullshit today? But what's funny is like one of my favorite quotes, and I, I wish I could know who to attribute to is it says, you know, uh, comedians use lies to tell the truth. And, and so to your point of exaggeration, um, I mean, you think about, some of the absolute most profoundly compelling philosophers of our time right now are, many of them are comedians. There's this guy, his name's Bo Burnham. He put out a special called Inside. It's on Netflix. It's a musical and it's probably one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. And is it comedy? Yes, but it's so much more than that. I mean, it's taking to task all these things and, and, and kind of humor is this gateway to the soul. And, and, and to your conversation that you and I had prior to hitting the record, we are in the business of evoking emotion. Um, mm. and, and, and part of that is allowing people to bring their, their defensive walls down and to be part of that story. And I think for me, comedy has always been a really compelling way to do that. Whether it's George Carlin or Richard Pryor, or Dave Chappelle, that, that they, are, they are philosophers that just happen to make us laugh. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree 100% with that. I can see how you might use that in training because there's a different dynamic when you're training with people, you know them already, uh, versus selling. Where's the line, do you think, in terms of how much of that you show? It's a tough question. I. It's a great question. It's a tough question. I do not know necessarily if there is a line per se. Um, and because the, the, the easy answer is self-awareness. And, and, mm -hmm. and I think that it's almost, and I'm not, I'm not putting myself on any massive, uh, level, like in athletics, like Lionel Messi or Ronaldo or, or, you know, in basketball, LeBron James and the late great Kobe Bryant. Uh, but it's almost like, I can imagine asking Lionel Messi, like, how do you know how to do that thing? And he's like, I, I practice, but at, yeah. in the moment, I just kind of do it and it feels right. And so the yeah. reason why I say self-awareness is there are plenty of times in groups that I've never trained before that there's a vibe I get that, that I know that one of my big goals here is to make them feel okay, make the audience feel okay, give them permission to feel pain, to show vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that is a little bit of, I'm not perfect. I have vulnerability. 
um, a little okay, not okay uh, principle. There are other times in, in, in sales calls where I'm dealing with someone who I can just sense in maybe the way in which they speak, maybe they're like me and they're gesticulating with their hands. And I know that one of the paths to help them, but also to help me is to dis disrupt a pattern, for example. Mm. And I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example uh, that happened just yesterday. And it, it wasn't, it's a line that I've used it countless times, but it just felt natural in the moment. And I remember a saying, and it was, it was, it was a good, not great sales call, but it was good. But you could feel there was no emotional connection just there. I was still getting surface level things. I hadn't gotten to the root cause. And so I just remember saying to the guy uh, making up the name, but I was like, I was like, hey, David, can I tell you something that makes surprise? He's like, what's that? It's like, no one actually wants sales training. And he's like, what? He's like, I'm like, yeah, I know it's weird that I own a company that largely does that, but no one actually wants it. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, no one really wants sales training. What they actually want is results. The challenge is, unless there's an ability to clone people or osmosis, there really isn't a way to get there. And that's why we engage in these conversations. And the conversation opened up from there. And um, I would actually say that was irreverent. It was interrupting patterns and and could it have backfired? Possibly, but unlikely, because in the mm. moment, it, it felt right. No, I think that was okay. I do. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting. Sometimes you have to have that external. I, I'll give you an example. I remember years ago, I had been at Sandra conference and I'd seen somebody present and they use this opening, ex not an exercise, story. So what they were talking about was, ah, was something to do with management and, and coaching and so on. But it was designed to be funny. And it was an opening which was, the top 10 things HR people say about sales reps and in, in, in interviewing. So it was, that was the context. And it was very funny. You start at number 10 and it was like, this person will go far and the sooner the better. This person will be out of their depth in a car park puddle and so on. And they got funnier as you got towards number one. You still, you start and everybody in the room loved it. It went down a storm so i thought i'm going to be doing that session next week back in ireland i'm going to take that opening and so i wrote to the guy and i said listen loved your opening today everybody else loved it can i use it and you guys yeah, absolutely here's the slides <laughs> so the following week and this following week was a, an executive briefing so for people who are not familiar with that is it's a prospecting event where you invite people who fit your typical prospect profile to typically two hours long, and you discuss some of the issues and challenges that they may be having and give them some insight into what a solution would look like. It's kind of like a workshop slash facilitated presentation with a strong call to action at the end. And I thought, I'm going to use this opening. And so I started at number 10 and I delivered it, ta-da, expecting a little bit of a... Uh, and just at number 10, I might get a mild smile, nothing. Stone cold faces. Number nine, nothing. Number eight. And as I was getting to number five, I'm thinking, none of this is working, but I have to keep going. I'm committed now. And I got to number one, and all I was getting was embarrassed laughs. And it's, <laughs> what do you say? Comedians sometimes die on their feet. I'm dying. And I have nowhere else to go. And it was funny because there was a... Uh, Kathy Spikowski. Kathy was an old coach of mine. She had come over from the States because this is in the early days when I started the business and that, six months into it, they send somebody over to sit in your class and audit you and make sure everything's going okay. And afterwards I said to her, listen, I, I don't know what happened. And she, and she, it was an important lesson. She said, Paul, she says, you have to earn the right to use humor. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, the guy who'd used it at the conference, most people in the room knew who he was, right? And therefore, he had earned that right to make assumptions about his audience and to, to put that forward. Whereas mm -hmm. none of these people in the room, like if they were clients, if there was a class, they'd be different. But these were, I basically shook hands with them as they walked in and that was it. 
And, and so that was a kind of an eye opener to me in terms of humor as well, in terms of where it's appropriate, where it isn't appropriate. And I think that's true in sales as well, that you have to be really, really careful. It has to be a kind of a, a very easy in, test the water, see how people react. And if it goes down well, step further. But it is a, a step process. I have seen people, in, in our, when I worked in Motorola, I remember a guy, uh, now he was the buyer, not the seller. So he was our customer. But I had this big, 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 chief walla walla over from headquarters and he was getting a tour and this guy told the most inappropriate joke ever without ever knowing this guy but kind of in the moment i guess was looking for some sort of approval so i, I think it is an interesting which is why i'm always fascinated with people who have a a background who have done stand up in terms of how they consciously what they're conscious of when it comes to humor because Humor is, can be, you know, I don't know, it was John Ross I heard first talk about the two most important things in humor. Maybe it was David Sandler, actually, guts and humor, two most important attributes in sales. And if you've got guts, courage, and humor that you can take, you can lighten any situation with the humor, but you can get yourself into any situation and get out of any situation using guts. And I just love that. But uh, if, it's, if it's not used correctly, I think it can backfire easily. You know, I uh, so that's it's a great story, and I, it's it's funny because I'm sitting here like, part of me expected you to say, and then I found out the entire room was HR people, or the entire room, you know. Uh, so even that, I didn't necessarily even know what was gonna what was gonna happen. Um, and I I also believe it or not, I I, I thought I'd heard everything of David Sandler, but uh, the guts part I heard, but I, I even though David Sandler was a very uh, funny person, um, the I never actually heard the guts and humor part. Um, there's a few thoughts that, 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 that I have. And, and, um, I mean the first, cause it's such a cliche to see, to say, be authentic at this point in time, it's probably one of the most cliche things one can say, but just cause it's cliche doesn't mean it's not true. And, and, you know, and so, um, I, I do my best to never really attempt to be someone who I'm not, at least not for far too long. Now, we know in selling and management, is it my responsibility to match and mirror that of uh, someone who is who I'm uh, training or someone who I'm selling to or someone who I'm managing? Of course it is. But but ultimately, um, I could never do what you do. And you start to think about, well, like, what is a superpower that someone has and, and how can I leverage it that makes it valuable experience for the audience as well as myself? And so here's the thing, I, I guess this kind of came to mind. I'm not sure if it's necessarily true, um, is I, I agree that one needs to earn the rights to be able to implement humor. Um, but I also feel like to some extent there's uh, it's like it, it's the difference between diving headfirst into the pool or the deep end and then walking up uh, or walking down rather using the guardrail and the stairs. And so here's what I have found. It's rare that things backfire when the speaker is making himself or herself the object in question. If, if, if we're making the joke about us, if we're talking about the ways in which we're not okay, um, then if I found it's, it's unless it's just really crass or, or really vulgar or offensive, or it's just not at all funny and it's you know completely lame, then I, I think those tend to be safer because when you think about the audience, they, they do want to hear that, but like most people want to feel okay. And so um, even in comedy, uh, stand-up comedians, um, you know, there are plenty who are telling these advanced, complicated stories about other people, but a lot of them, they are the butt of the joke. Uh, and that it's maybe safer, I guess, to be the butt of the joke um, than it is to uh, yeah, it is. without, without yeah. the trust to make others the person to maybe uh, feel not okay, or maybe the person who they're talking about. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. The self-deprecating one is is very important. It makes you vulnerable and makes you likable. There's still guardrails on it though, as well. Oh, you yeah. can't use inappropriate language unless you're with close friends, for example, and then it's not inappropriate. But listen, I want to move away from this. Talk to you a little bit about um, you, your journey from that into this business, particularly because it's. To the outside, it looks like a great business to be in, but you'll know better than anybody else. It's bloody tough. 
And uh, so I wanted to ask you, what is it, what aspect of working for yourself where you have to dig deep and really, really find that resolve and that grit inside yourself to keep going? Yeah, that's that's a great and expansive question. It's it's and it's funny because even a lot of the things that I share in a joking manner, there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, not always, but you know, I, and I, I I think one of the primary reasons where why I own my own business and I'm my own boss is I never found myself to be a particularly good employee. Um, is it, it, <laughs> and I mean in a very literal way. Sometimes you take these assessments and they would say, you know. Nima has very high ambition, high X, Y, Z, the lowest possible when it comes to response to authority and being told what to do. And it's not that I can't do it. Um, even back in my medical device days, when I was, I had a lot of success and I was selling and I was winning all the awards and things, you know, a mandate comes down and I was the guy that's like, yes, yes, but why, but why, but why? Um, and so, uh, which maybe also I, I keep in mind uh, as it pertains to my business now, because I, I'm always mindful that in any group of people, especially our private clients, you may have some percentage, 10 or 15, 20% that they're excited to be there. They are, you know, they, they love that the company's invested in them. They're high performers and so on. Then you have the other end of the continuum that they're the hostages they're there because they have to be. It's like the scene from Office Space where they're bringing in the consultants and it's like, oh, they're bringing in the Bobs, you know? And so they're kind of like this, what's this guy? What's what's Paul Landing going to possibly teach me? I've been doing this since, you know, for 20, 30 years and so on. So, and I was probably that latter. I, I, I was probably a little bit of the, of maybe the person who wouldn't buy into things uh, quickly um, was always questioning it and saying, you know, anyway. So the, the, the like the point is, that's the first part of it is I, I think that, you know, they talk about um, what's the quotes? Uh, was it Churchill? Democracy is the, is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's, it's uh, you know, entrepreneurship is a terribly beautiful journey. It is the hardest thing you'll ever love. And I can even say on my worst days, Entrepreneurship is the worst thing possible, except for doing all the other things, not because they're bad, but because they weren't really necessarily a fit for me. And it's, you know, as far as the actual origin story itself, um, it's going to sound odd, but I always felt like I, I always want to be in control of my own destiny. If I'm going to I'm going to fail at something, I want to be able to pull as many levers as I can. But there, there were times back in medical device sales where as successful as I was, we'd have a product that would have it an FDA recall um, or an adverse event. The product would mal malfunction. And in, in my head, through no real fault or control of my own, my livelihood was, was impacted by it. Um, and so I, I, I do agree with you that from the outside, people kind of look at what we do and they probably, they, they see all the positives the same way those who have children and my friends who have kids I see their kids at the party dressed up so adorably, clean, polished. I do not know that it took them five hours, 18 attempts at bribery, some threats to get the child just to put their shoes on. All I see is the end result. And I think the same is true. A lot of times people probably know intellectually what we do isn't easy, but they tend to see us in front of a camera, in front of a crowd, and they're like, wow, this guy gets to just get up and speak for a living. That must be awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think to kind of, you know, like, like land the plane, um, there are some behaviors uh, or big behavioral guys and uh, journaling and meditating are the two most important things that I've found. I, I found them five or six years ago, but it was only 225 days ago, I can tell you, because today was my 225th consecutive day uh, of, of journaling, um, that I realized that that's probably the most important thing to your point on the darkest days, uh, you know, and it's just, it's a lot of realizing that these things that seem that they're going to, like they may kill you actually will not. Uh, those who you find yourself comparing yourself to are oftentimes themselves running their own race, not yours. Um, you know, but Teddy Roosevelt, comparisons of Thief of Joy. And so as far as, as much as I absolutely do love, love, love um, my job, on the worst days, I, 
I think it's really a lot of mindfulness and just reminding ourselves of simple things uh, that the universe does provide for us if we do the right things. Um, and it's oh. the craziest thing. I've become a big believer in this law of attraction phenomena. I have no actual proof that it exists, but I got to tell you, it's just, I mean, the harder and smarter I work, the luckier I get. Um, yeah. And people will find me. And, I, and there's got to be some other thing beyond just me being good. And I think a lot of this just, you know, controlling this the best of my ability. Mm. Oh, I'm funny with that because my daughter has entered this draw for a, this particular car. And the draw is in September. She's convinced she's winning it because she has manifested this. And uh, I'm afraid to say anything in case she does win it. <laughs> but here's what I want to ask you. You mentioned journaling, and I saw on LinkedIn you'd put up the picture of your journal. Talk to me about what journaling is for you. What, what do you journal about and what it does for you? Well, what it does for me in a very simple way is it helps me empty out my head trash. Uh, we, we, we all, I think, carry baggage around with us. Um, sometimes it's life scripts. Sometimes it's very literal, such as the last six prospects told me no. What difference is a seventh going to be? Um, we've seen this in, in sports, whether, whether you're a soccer fan or a baseball fan. You know, a baseball player goes through a batter's slump. Um, and it's just a slump they're in. It, it, it's not unlikely anything's actually happened. They probably didn't forget how to swing a baseball bat, but something has happened in their head that has allowed them to stay there. Um, you know, like one of the, in, in my opinion, and if you disagree, I apologize. Uh, Lionel Messi to me is the greatest footballer of all time. Um, he was probably haunted by missing a penalty kick against Chile, you know, a few years ago at the Copa America. Um, mm. And so it's not like he forgot how to kick, kick a, a, a soccer ball. It's, it's, it's that, you know, th there is that mental aspect to it. There is head trash. There is these things that we have to empty out. So that's largely why I do it is, uh, and it doesn't mean that I'm always journaling about bad things or journaling about good things. Um, one of the examples I use, which is may or may not relate to you is, uh, People are used to things like Yelp or Google reviews. And what's and I call it the Yelp phenomena. I probably just made it up. Um, but when you think about Yelp, many people who are just casual Yelp users, they tend to go to Yelp uh, if they're going to write a review. They oftentimes are writing about, this was the worst restaurant I've ever been to. I was so wronged by it. My food was late. It was cold. How unfair is the world? One star. Uh, or the opposite, right? best meal ever. It was amazing. Yeah. Five stars. Very rarely do people write a review about a Subway sandwich. Uh, just literally like, yeah, I had a, a six foot or six inch uh, cold cut sandwich from Subway and it was just fine. Three stars. Now, sometimes they do, but, um, but it's usually these extremes. And to me, journaling is the same way. It, it's easy to journal about the worst thing that happened today was just no good, empty, empty, empty head trash, or it's probably easy to share and write and journal about all this amazing stuff that happened and how grateful you are and so on. Mm. What's hard is that mundane is just mm. the, the rest of the days that aren't these peaks. And so for me, the, the big change, and this will get into what I journal about, was just doing it. Like the Jerry Seinfeld method where he talks about he writes every single day, no matter what, based on uh, whatever he's feeling. If he has nothing to say, he'll just write about writing. Um, and then he also rewards himself by having a conclusion to it. He doesn't, he doesn't just write forever. He actually says, okay, I'm going to write for this amount of time. I'm going to reward myself, and then I can move on with my day. So for, for me, um, I tend to focus a lot, believe it or not, on the mundane. Um, and so what are some things I journal about? Always some combination between uh, a gratitude or affirmation, uh, a behavior I'm engaging in or have engaged in, um, something that I learned, a lesson that I've learned, a success uh, that I'm celebrating, uh, maybe a quote that I like. And there is a format to it. Um, and I'll give you an example because this happened not too long ago. It's probably now maybe a month ago, six weeks ago. Um, 
I was having a not so good day. And because my style always goes to a mixture between the absurd and then a the little bit of like the self-deprecating aspect we mm. talked about. And I remember writing down my gratitude statement because I didn't really feel much gratitude that day. I wrote down something that was like, no matter how bad things get, there's always soup. Like as in soup, the food that you eat, soup, which I happen to be a big fan of. And I wrote it down in a kind of a silly way, almost like a the heck with this, no gratitude. But I said, no matter how bad things get, there's always soup. And then mm. by the end of it, I realized that I'd actually stumbled upon something that was very true. Because then by the end of just that one page of journaling, I basically said, you know what I just realized? I have never, at least since I was a teenager, had to decide of whether I'm gonna put gas in my car or whether I'm gonna buy something to eat. I've never had to deal with that. I've never had mm. to know what that pain is, that fear is. And then by the end, you're kind of just like, what do I really have to complain about? How bad are things? And so even something as silly as soup became in its own like point, in its own mind, something mm. that ended up being profound and it started with soup. So mm. that's kind of what I journal about and, and what I've gained from it is really just a way to level and be more mindful about this uh, human experience. Yeah. That we're on. I like it. Yeah. It's yeah, no, I, I get it. I, I be, I'll be honest. I've tried journaling on several occasions and I'll do it. I'll, I'll get streaks, short streaks, maybe a few weeks. And then for whatever reason it stops. Um, I do struggle with it. I have to look at it and I don't know what to write about. And then when I think I don't know what to write about, what's the point of it? Like I, maybe I'm, just not getting it um, and I'm also just not good at consistent execution on anything I get distracted easily and mm. uh, I see a squirrel and I'm off there looking for the squirrel <laughs> and so that becomes problematic and I tend to follow the things that I feel I want to follow in the moment rather than what I should do so which works in some things and gets me into trouble in others so who's to say uh I don't know. Well, no, actually, as, as, as I think of new ideas and things that I want to do when I grow up, um, I, I, I kind of do go back to it because it's a great way of gathering thoughts. But as I said, when, once I've kind of put some structure on my thoughts, then I tend to put it down. And maybe I need to go back and, and do it because I know anybody I talk to about it gets a lot of value from it. So I've never well, had I, anybody I, say bad, bad things about it. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I have some extremely close friends who are wildly successful who never journal at all. Not for them. Mm. And I have others who, who do. Uh, it, it's not, I mean, if, if it works, try it on. If it doesn't, that's fine. I, I, I will say there's probably another point around goals in general and how some goals can be de-incentivizing. Um, mm. As I mentioned, I... I found the concept of journaling five, six, seven years ago. It was only, it was only until 225 days ago that I said, I'm going to do this every day. Um, mm. I think that if someone wanted to try it, I wouldn't say, okay, commit to doing it every single day without yeah. fail. That, that, you know, it, it, cause then by, to your point, by day two, day three, day seven, however long you got, you miss day eight, miss day nine. You're like, ah, oh, well the heck with it. I, I can't do it. Uh, you know, it's either dumb or, I'm a failure at it and then you stop doing it. So I, I, I do think that, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's like everything else. It, it may never be a fit for someone like you, um, uh, which is totally fine. Um, or it might be something that, you know, it's not about doing it. Eventually I do suggest as people have done it for long enough to, okay, why don't you commit to doing it for some amount of time? Even my goal in that, in that James clear atomic habits way, I, I didn't really have this goal to do 225 days. I think I'm going to do 100 days. I think just listening to you, all I've discovered is probably my problem. And that I have these, these journals that I have. I don't know if I have any here, uh, but there's these specific ones I was buying, and I have a few blank ones because they, they, they're 90-day journals, and they keep sending to, them to you every 90 days. And, of course, if you're not using them, they, <laughs> they tend to pile up. So I have a few blank ones. But I think what it is is that they're they're probably because what I noticed from yours it was free form, where these are kind of formulaic. It's like plan your day, so there's the list element, and then there's 
three, you know, my three goals for this week and what I'm grateful for and all that's fine. But I think they're forcing me into a structure that I don't like. I, I would much prefer to just sit and just write whatever comes out of my pen. And uh, that might, I, might, I might try that and see where that takes me because I hear enough from people to believe that it's, that it's good. I just maybe need to find the right way to do it. Um, I completed an entire journal. At, like literally I had no pages left in it. Mm. And I remember this, maybe another little thing that came to mind that made me chuckle a little bit is I, I just thought of, wow, what a satisfying feeling to just have every page of this have content. And, that, and then the thing that I told myself, it's like, it's like, I have to assume it's the way kids feel when they do a long division problem and they get no remainder. It's like, oh, this is their, <laughs> so I, I, it's a simple, it's a simple, silly thing, but the, the, yeah. the, the behavior is the point. Um, I, yeah. It's just the satisfying for me feeling of having done it um, to me is, is kind of why I do it, um, which is why do I have a general format yeah, I mentioned you know behaviors and affirmations and gratitudes and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but no, I mean the one I did this morning, it was what I felt, and I just mm. for some reason I don't know why I was like I, I felt this you know this this compelled need need to just list out many of the kind of lessons that I had internalized over the past two hundred twenty five days, and so that's what came out. Mm. I think that could be a problem for me as well. That if I wrote down everything I felt. I, I would be scared senseless that somebody would find that journal <laughs> and that it would be published somewhere and then I'd be destroyed. I'd end up behind bars. Uh, I feel uh, you. Me, uh, talk to me a little bit about what you enjoy the most about the job and what you enjoy the least. Start with the least first, get that out of the way, and then we'll, talk, we'll finish on a high. We'll talk about what you like yeah. most. Yeah, good news, bad news. What do you want first? Always the bad news. Um, yeah. So for me, this this business, and it's funny, I don't know if you watch any cop or lawyer dramas like you know, Law and Order, these procedural uh, shows, they, they make being a lawyer seem like the coolest job in the world because they make being a lawyer like you're in the courtroom and you say objection, overruled, and then you know that's what they make it seem like. And we all know lawyers, and many of them never see the inside of the courtroom. Uh, even those who do, it's two, three, four, five percent of what their actual job is. The rest is digesting very dull and dry legal briefs and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I think my version of that, and that's hyperbole for me, I would say I enjoy much of what I do. But what I enjoy the least, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of all of the, the the management and the admin and the the planning and you know everything that goes into this from because there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes from onboarding uh, uh, new clients to scheduling to sending out the the the, the pre work and the post work and does everyone have the right you know x y and z so now luckily we we, we tend to get to a point where we can delegate a, a lot of that um, but uh, yeah I mean all the stuff that takes me away from the things that I do enjoy. Um, mm. are the things that I don't like. So what do I really enjoy? So recap, what I don't enjoy, all the admin, all the stuff that some people really, really love, all the looking at like spreadsheets and all these things. Can I do it? Yes. Do I like to do it? Not really. Uh, now, one of the things that I love about it, um, you know, like I do love being able to speak, being able to train, being able to see that light bulb go off in someone's head, being able to get them to a point, and by the way, them get themselves to the point, it's probably a better way to say it, where they realize that they were capable of more than even, that they even thought they were. Um, the part where you have clients who will say to you, you know, after a year, two years in, I really thought we were buying sales training and management training, but now I'm coaching my kid's soccer team and my business is fine because I'm the owner. I used to be at the office till eight, nine o'clock, now I'm not. I, I love that part. Um, I I love stuff like this. Uh, I love creating content. Uh, I love you know the videos. You and I have done a video in the past where there's a silliness to it, um, and uh, and I and I do love I do love selling uh, because I I understand it much mm. better and differently than I did a decade ago. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think once you realize what it is and what it isn't, it takes a lot of pressure off as well that it isn't this high pressure forcing people to do stuff. It's more just conversational. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that was certainly my my big breakthrough. So look, I'm, I'm conscious, Nima, we're coming up against the hour and I wanted to ask you just a couple of quick, more more personal related questions. Not not too personal, but um, you're... This I'm always I'm always fascinated by the different answers I get to this question. So your your house is burning down, and your family are safe, and your if you have any animals are safe. Your your phone of course is safe, and your computer, and you've got time to run back in and grab one thing. What would it be? Photo albums. Okay. <laughs> yeah, photo albums. Um... They're all in the cloud. Oh, wow, that's tough. Um, I can give you another answer. I, I still like photo albums because there's so many things. I think about that as tactical mm. ones, the actual album itself with the notes and the margins from your mom and things. Um, so mm. that would probably be mine. Um, uh, God, this is a cliche answer. I, I don't own anything I really care about that much. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, weird. Um, photos, I guess the journals. Mm. Um, I have this box of just random stuff I've collected over the course of my life. Um, mm. I have, uh, report cards that I've gotten as a kid. I have, um, you know, uh, birthday cards in there. there I had this box that just has a bunch of just random things. I, I have the car key for my very first broken down car that I owned. I, I guess I would grab that. Um, but outside of mm. that, I gotta tell you, I don't think I, to your point about things from the cloud, yeah. you have insurance, I don't think I own anything that I really care about that much materially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've only got one item. I think it's here somewhere. It's an old camera that my grandfather bought in France after the First World War. Yeah, it's worthless. It's, I've seen them on eBay for thirty-five bucks. Like, but yeah. uh, I have this thing. I mean, I, I I've I've been wearing this uh, necklace since I was born, um, and it's completely faded. You can't even read it anymore. There used to be uh, something on there, but that was gifted to me by uh, a, a grandfather, or actually great grandfather that I never met. Um, so, it, it, if it, if and when I lose this, which is interesting, because it's it's inevitable that I will. You know, it's like that whole mm. memento mori, you know, one day you will die kind of thing. I, this will probably happen that I'll lose it because I never take it off. Uh, mm. I would be very sad if I lost this. So if some reason this was not on me, I'd probably go and grab that one. That's my yeah. equivalent of, of your grandfather's camera. Okay. Final question, Nima. Uh, mm. When your time on this planet is done and they write a book about your life story, what would you like the title to be? <laughs> Uh, he made the right joke at the right time. <laughs> I like that. And that is original. I've never had that answer. So kudos on that one. That's for sure. All right. Listen, Nina, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute privilege. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you. This is awesome. No, thank you.